Hi, I'm Rich Fournier, and in this episode, I sit down with Canadian Olympic skeleton racer Sarah Reed, who made her Olympic debut at Sochi in 2014 as a reigning world bronze medalist after a breakout season in 2012 and 13. Sarah talks about how focusing on her dream but needing to make tweaks to the how along the way was the key to reaching all of her goals. We also tackle the value of mindset when pushing through barriers that you inevitably are going to come against during the process. So stay tuned. Have you ever wondered why some people thrive in all areas of their life? Welcome to the Peak Results Academy podcast with your host, Rich Fournier. Each week, we interview industry experts who consistently dominate in the fields of health, business, and beyond. Our mission is to share their personal struggles and strategies so that you can create your own peak results. Welcome to the Academy. Hello, everyone. Rich Forney here for the Peak Results Academy podcast. I'm your host, and today I'm super excited to be having another Olympian on our podcast. And the reason why I'm so excited to have an Olympian on our podcast is because they have achieved something so very few of us will ever achieve. Um, they're operating at one of the highest levels in sports. Um, that requires a certain level of thinking that is extraordinary. And that's why I'm always excited and honored to have someone who has participated at that level on our show. Today we have Sarah Reed. Um, very excited to have you today, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. So first of all, it's not Sarah Reed anymore. It's Sarah McLaughlin. She's married McNaughton. now. McNaughton. Yeah. McLaughlin. I lose my mind. Yes. <laughs> the pressure being... <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, um, see, can I'll be perfect. It's true. Not all the time. <laughs> Just some of the time. So Sarah, I mean, you had an amazing career. Um, in the sport of skeleton. Um, I want to talk about you just for just a little bit. I want to explain to people who we're speaking with. So they Sounds have great. an understanding. You, uh, you made your Olympic debut in Sochi 2014 as a reigning world bronze medalist. Um, after breakout season 2012 and 13, you ended up um, the top Canadian racer in Sochi with a seventh place finish. It's extraordinary accomplishment. Thank you. Absolutely extraordinary. And of course, in this podcast, we're always trying to figure out what is that magic sauce? What is that holy elixir? What is that magic thing that creates a peak result in someone's life, their business, sport, whatever it may be? And today I'm going to try to dig and pull that out of you to figure out what enabled you to create some amazing results in your life in sport. So thank you for the time. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Um, so you started off being a world champion, right? Like you didn't have to work at it at all. Yeah, I know. It's skeleton of all sports just comes very naturally sledding head first down an ice track. So. How fast do you actually, like how fast do you really go? It sort of depends on the track. So all the tracks are built differently. They all have similar elements to them, but every track is different and has different speeds. Mm -hmm. The fastest track in the world, and probably I think the fastest track that we'll ever see for the sport of skeleton is the track in Whistler, British Columbia. Um, and the speeds on that track are upwards of 140 kilometers an hour. So faster than you drive on the highway. <laughs> Face first, head first. Head first on your stomach. On your stomach. Yeah. <laughs> You're nuts. You're crazy. My family watches the sport, and, and we're just in awe of, of people like you who really putting your life in danger every time you compete. 
I mean, I guess it's funny when you're doing it, you don't think of it that way. There's definitely risk of injury and, and risk of, um, crashes. Every skeleton athlete has a few great crashes under their belt, but, um, as you kind of progress through the sport and as you sort of perfect your driving style and perfect your technique, uh, it's less about the speed and the danger and more about kind of getting that fast time and that perfect run. Do you think differently about it now, um, being a parent? I say that I would not want my daughter to do skeleton. Just want to clarify. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you, um, did you always grow up wanting to, to be in that competitive situation? Did you think about being in, in the Olympics as a child? Not really, actually. So I grew up, um, I did kind of various sports. I grew up in a pretty active household. I have two younger siblings and uh, me and my siblings played a bunch of sports. My parents were always very active. So I played soccer and snowboarding, um, but I mainly did ballet growing up. So I was a ballerina from about age five to 15 for 10 years. Wow. So you're and very strong, strong core, strong body, great posture. For sure. Yeah. It gave me a lot of body awareness and um, outside of kind of the athletic side of things, a lot of discipline as well. I was in, it's called Chiquetti is the form of ballet that I practiced. And it's a really strict, um, like a very high, highbrow kind of ballet. So it definitely taught me a lot about discipline and about commitment and at a young age, kind of what it means to commit to something and focus, focus on something. So I never really thought about the Olympics. I more, I wanted to be a ballerina. You want to be a ballerina. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's funny. I, so I have three girls and, you know, to one of them is extremely competitive and, and, and committed to gymnastics. Um, but to, to put them into such, you know, into a competitive state at a young age where they had to learn discipline, are you an extraordinary, like, it, does that require a certain mindset? Because my kids to, to say, this is the training regiment, this is exactly what we're going to do. Yeah, I think I was really lucky. So my ballet teacher was, um, she was from South Africa. She grew up dancing and she was very, very strict, but also really nurturing. Um, and I, I spent a ton of time in the dance studio with her when I was young and she really held us to kind of a higher standard. So yeah. Um, I think we all had like a healthy fear of her as well, which doesn't hurt. <laughs> um, but I was really lucky early on to have kind of a role model in my life that I, I wanted to work hard for and I wanted to, um, I wanted to impress her. I wanted to be the best for her as well. So uh, that kind of was a good driving force as well. What a great foundation for the rest of your life. For sure. Yeah, I do think ballet of all the sports that I did growing up, I think ballet made me sort of the athlete at the core that I am now. Amazing. And um, when did you get an inkling that diving off a mountain head first <laughs> would be your sport of choice? Would be a good idea. Right. <laughs> um, so I grew up in Calgary, Alberta. Um, and for a long time, that was the only bobsleigh luge and skeleton track in Canada before the Vancouver Olympics. That was the only track in Canada. So um, I would go to Canada Olympic Park and snowboard and ski and stuff. And the track set is set kind of right beside the ski hill there. So I knew about bobsleigh. I had never heard of skeleton before. And a girlfriend of mine and I had watched Cool Runnings and thought maybe bobsleigh was a sport that we wanted to try. <laughs> 
So I actually called Canada Olympic Park and asked how I would get into a sport like that. And they invited me out to um, a talent ID camp. They host these camps to kind of scout athletes that show strength in the sport of bobsleigh. So at age 15, I went to this talent ID camp and pretty, pretty immediately realized I was in over my head. Um, now in hindsight, I'm 5'1", 120 pounds, like not, not a build for bobsleigh. Um, but I think they were interested in a younger athlete showing interest in the sliding sports. So they asked me if instead of bobsleigh, if I wanted to try the sport of skeleton. And I um, went and did a, like a driving school. They do a three-day driving school to teach you how to drive the sled and go down the track and was pretty much hooked on the sport right off, off the jump. So, Was there any pushback from the parents? <laughs> not openly. I think my mom was a little upset that she was not going to be watching me perform ballet, that she was going to be <laughs> standing trackside in the freezing cold watching me. Right. I've had first, but they were, they were always really supportive of kind of all of my athletic ventures. So it's amazing when you look at, you know, in, forming an interest in something and then moving to the next level of like, I think I want to do this. Yeah. How that, how did you um, create that? Or was that just a natural reflection of your competitive spirit or was there a defining moment when you thought, Hey, maybe I can do something here. Yeah, so it was a slower build. Skeleton's such a funny sport because it's not it's not something you can really train for too too much. Like with soccer, you can take a soccer ball to the park and you can practice. Or with skiing, you can go to the ski hill on the weekends. But with skeleton, there's a very specific season. There's track times when you can go and slide. You can't you can't really train for it and develop um, develop your skills outside of that time that you can be on the track. So it takes a little bit longer to, um, or at least I found it, it's a, a slower uh, learning curve. But in 2006, so Skeleton was a test event in the 2002 Olympics. Yep. And I started sliding in 2003. So I got to slide with a lot of the athletes that went to the 2006 Olympics in Torino. And seeing those athletes athletes compete on the world stage in the Olympic games in a sport that I was competing in, I kind of looked at them and went, Oh, Oh wow. This is what I could do. And especially like those were the athletes that I sat next to on the truck ride up to the top of the track and the athletes that I was bumping elbows with in the start house. So kind of knowing those people and then getting to see them excel at the Olympics made me feel like I really could do it. Did you have any thoughts that, well, I'm not, I'm not capable of doing that? Or was this, the environment creates such a, um, a feeling of anything's possible? Not at that point. Okay. Um, later on in my career, I definitely had some feelings of, of self-doubt. But I think I always had such great examples in the sport of setting a goal and working towards it that I sort of knew... I knew where I wanted to be. And then it was just about putting the pieces together to actually get there. Got it. Is there a lot of, for lack of better wording, uh, you know, offline or tried land training that you do to get ready for diving off? Yeah, yeah definitely. So yeah. that's such a huge piece of it because the tracks are usually open from around October. It depends on, it depends on the weather for one thing. And then every track has a different season, but um, tracks usually don't open until about October and then the skeleton season, the competitive season is over in March. So 
-hmm. you have a whole chunk of the year where you're not able to actually practice that practical sliding on ice. Skeleton does have a push start. So it's about a 30 meter flat bib at the start of the track where you push your sled before you get on. So a lot of the dry land training has to do with perfecting that speed um, at the start of your run. And as I kind of progressed through the sport, the dry land training definitely became more and more intensive and more and more specific. Uh, so our summer schedules were pretty much solely based on that five seconds at the very start of the run. Wow. And when you look at the mindset to be able to push yourself in the off season, I mean, you were relatively young at this time, weren't you? I was. By the time that I kind of got, f um, I was on the national team. I believe I was 19 years old when I first made the national team. So fairly young in the sport, for sure. They consider skeleton to be kind of a second generation sport. So athletes come from sprinting um, or like track and field backgrounds. And it's sort of the second sport that they pursue. But for me, I guess second generation sort of, but it was really the first sport that I kind of went all in on. You know, at 19, I wasn't the um, most responsible human being. Um, and I'm sure my mom was not proud of me at that time in my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I actually went to school in Ottawa. I think your husband did as well. And um, I just enjoyed myself to the nth degree. Um, and I look back at when I was 18 and 19 years old, and I, I did not have the foresight or the emotional stability or, or the emotional maturity to make, to make a choice like that. Because um, I didn't. Because if I did, I would have made a different choice. Um, where did that grounding come from? I think just having that kind of bigger goal in sight that I always knew that I wanted to get to. Um, and I was really lucky as well in the summertime, especially we had a very core group of, uh, like a training group that we would train with every day. We trained some days, five hours a day, five days a week. And I was really lucky that that training group was super fun, always kept it really light, but also really a hardworking group of people. And I had great coaches around me and great support staff to kind of keep it light, but also keep it on track. And I just always knew that in October, the track opens, I want to be the fastest I can be when I hit the ice. At the end of the year, there's world championships. At the end of the quadrennial, there's the Olympics. So there was sort of all these steps that I was always focusing on to kind of keep me on track. Is your anyone in your family competitive or goal driven? Um, which is, it's amazing. Like I look at, you know, my life or people I work with, or um, it's it's a it's a commodity that I'd love to be able to bottle and sell. Um, um, so, did you have that part of your life? Like your family were they competitive in that way as well? Competitive, definitely. My youngest sister is an artist, so she's not so much on the competitive side, but more on the artistic side. But my middle sister was a professional snowboarder as well um, and competed in the X Games and was, was very successful. So I think we were raised in an environment where we were really encouraged to set goals and work towards those goals, but not, not in a strict way, just we were really supported by our parents to kind of go after what we wanted. And um, I really think all the people in my life kind of built me up to be in the best position to achieve the goals that I wanted to achieve. That's amazing. So did you, were there times in your training where you were like, maybe I'm going to go to the pub and have a few pints and live, you know what I mean? Like this, that never drew you in? Or um, 
there's a lot of fun to be had on tour, I will say. So I don't think I missed out on too, too much. I mean, I definitely missed out on kind of the, I went to a specific school, a specific high school for competitive sports. So I sort of missed out on the traditional high school experience. You didn't but miss Yeah, exactly. I was getting this phenomenal experience every winter of touring the world in these amazing places that I had never even heard of with people from all over the world doing, in my opinion, one of the coolest sports there is. So I sort of always had that. I'm missing some stuff, but I'm getting an experience that no one else, very few other people are getting. And there's lots of fun to be had on tour. So (laughs) I can imagine. Yeah, (laughs) I can imagine. Um, When you look at the amount of hours that you put in every single day, like what, what would that look like in a typical day for you? So it did change. I would say the most um, sort of intensive years of my training schedules was the year, the quadrennial between the Vancouver Olympics and the Sochi Olympics, because that was when I kind of really thought, okay, I know where I want to be in four years from now and I know what I have to do to get there. So those four years for sure were the the strictest years of my training regimen. Um, and we would train Monday to Friday. Our training group would train roughly four to five hours a day. And then kind of sprinkled in there would be physiotherapy or chiropractic work, as well as like hot and cold tub, um, sort of all the like complimentary physio as well. So it, I, I looked at it as a job, like it was a kind of a Monday to Friday, eight to five sort of gig for sure. Wow. Um, when you look at, um, is it expensive to train and to get all those type of treatments? I'm assuming it has to be. I was lucky. So, um, a lot of athletes, the, a lot of the national team athletes are supported by own the podium. Um, so we had funding available to us to be able to get a lot of that stuff. And unfortunately it's not always available. I know the skeleton team now has lost some of the own the podium funding. It's, it's just sort of based on results. And if it's a build season for a team, they may not have the funding that they need to support all of the athletes. But I was very lucky that I was in the sport in a time where there was a lot of support and I had a lot available to me. So that's great. Yeah, it was awesome. Were there, um, I mean, listen, let's be honest. They hit seventh place globally. I mean, that's, it's an outstanding accomplishment. And, you know, we talk about the accolades. Um, Were there any times um, in your career where emotionally, um, you just didn't feel up to the task. Yeah, definitely. Um, Do you mind sharing that? Because, you know, yeah. you, you, we talk about creating a peak result in whatever area of your life that you're looking to create something in, but if you don't hit bottom, there's no, you can't create a peak result somehow or another. Mm-hmm. It must be some part of the journey that's painful. Yeah, no, for sure. And there's, there's a couple moments specifically that stick out to me. Um, as I mentioned before, Every, I think every athlete and skeleton has, in my opinion, lots of small crashes, but one big crash. Um, and I had a, a pretty bad crash in 2009, um, just before the Vancouver Olympics at a track in St. Moritz. Um, and I knocked myself out. I broke my sled. I broke my helmet. It took me off the tour for two races. And coming back from that crash was really, really challenging. It was just such a hit to my um, a hit to my confidence. And I felt it was one of the first times that I truly felt a lot of fear surrounding my sport. Right. And I hadn't had that so much standing on the start line, like fear for my own health and safety. Um, 
And so that definitely took a lot to kind of get past and get back to a place where I was feeling comfortable on my sled and confident with my steers versus feeling stiff and kind of, kind of scared sliding. Yeah, apprehensive. Um, exactly. Yeah. And it's, I find when you're, when you've had a hit to your confidence, it's, it is hard to get it back. So definitely at that point, that was a really hard um, thing to overcome. And then I was in contention to make the Vancouver Olympics and I didn't qualify for the Vancouver Olympics. And again, that was sort of a moment where it's a hit to the ego. It's a hit to your confidence. And I had to kind of take a step back and reevaluate my goals and build a different outline going forward. So there's, there's lots of highs and lows. I think that you, at least that I experienced. And I think all athletes are all people experience and it's kind of how you go back to the drawing board and how you rewrite your narrative to kind of get, get yourself out of it and keep yourself moving again. <clears throat> Most people don't rewrite their narrative. <clears throat> so it's true. <laughs> let's like, let's be honest, right? What, if you could look back at that time, what process did you use to regain confidence in a sport where it is a little bit dangerous? Um, so what enabled you to create that confidence again internally to go compete again? Was it, did you have a coach? Did you have a therapist? Did you, um, like, like, what did you, what did you do? Yeah. So coming back from my crash that I had in 2009, I, the next race that I competed in was actually a home world cup in Whistler. Okay. And Whistler is, I think if you asked any skeleton athlete in the world, it would be one of the top for the scariest tracks in the world, the most fun tracks in the world, but it's a fast, really technical track. So I felt like coming back, I was sliding scared. Um, and I, my dad actually wrote me a card and he, he had glued a Theodore, the Theodore, the Theodore Roosevelt quote, um, the critic yep. inside. And I remember he wrote, I love you not for your successes or failures, but for daring greatly. And I actually have a tattoo in my dad's writing from that card because that card just really hit home to me. It was such a, that quote is so much about, it doesn't matter if you win or lose, but it matters if you're in the arena, getting dirty, blood on your face. So I kind of was able, like with that intent in mind, I was able to kind of go, okay set aside the fear, set aside the crash, set aside all the other stuff. And let's just focus on what I can control. So I think looking just from day to day, um, like making smaller goals from day to day, focusing on the little things that I could control really helped me get my confidence back and helped me kind of reset and kind of dig myself out of that place of not feeling like I had a lot of confidence sliding for sure. When you look at, you know, you just kind of stop for a second and think, where would your life have been if you didn't dig yourself out of that place? I probably would not have gone to the games because I think it's really easy. It's really easy to spiral in those moments and then your results start to take a dip. And I think when you do kind of let yourself spiral, then you have those feelings of this isn't worth it. I don't want to, I don't want to be away on tour anymore. I don't want to, there's, like a bit of ego involved. It's in, embarrassing when you're sliding slow and you're sliding scared. So I think being able to sort of step out of it and take all the other noise away from it and just kind of go, 
okay, let's go back to the drawing board. Let's go back to square one and start from there again. Right, because you can't hide behind a team member. No. You, yeah. on your own, right there, everyone's yeah. focused on you. They know that you're, you're sliding slow. Yeah, and it's you, it's you versus the clock. So you can't, it, that's exactly it. You can't fake it. You know, results are the, the only thing you can measure. It's harsh, mm-hmm. but always fair. Yeah. And yep. that was a lesson that I had to learn that results show everything about how we think, who we think we are. It's the results that show, how we show up every single day. Um, was creative visualization and thought process a big part of making that transition from holy crap, do I, can I actually do this again? Was there any sort of formalized training around visualization? Not necessarily formalized, but um, that was something that I really did a lot of because, so for a standard World Cup race, you arrive at a new track every week and you get six training runs before race day to perfect um, and find the fastest lines on the track. So for athletes where it's their home track, they have hundreds and hundreds of runs. And then athletes that are coming to visit that track, you get six. So I kind of thought and was encouraged by coaches as well. But my thought process was if I can't physically be on the track, at least I can lay in my sled and I can visualize and kind of practice without being there. So we would have um, like point of view videos of the track. And after sliding, I would lay in my sled and look at the point of view video. And it was like I was getting more training runs, even though I wasn't on the ice. And the more and more that I did that, the more and more that I felt kind of comfortable with what was coming on the track, comfortable with, um, I would almost practice mistakes. So if I went like crooked into a corner or didn't perfect a steer properly, I would practice what I would do in that scenario. And that definitely helped get some confidence back as well. Just feeling like I had more time and more runs under my belt than I would otherwise. When you're in the moment of visualizing, you're actually creating new neural connections in your brain that allow you to operate more efficiently. And um, we can do that in every part of our life. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so in our world, right, in the real estate world or the coaching world, <clears throat> We take someone who um, has never prospected or went out looking for business ever in their life, probably. We get them licensed. We do all these sorts of things. But all of a sudden, we expect them to go talk to 100 people a day. Yeah. It's impossible. They're never going to do it. No, it's so daunting. Because they don't have the connections in the brain to make it natural. Yeah. They're not programmed to do it. Yeah, for sure. And so what you do when you're doing this creative visualization, you're actually reprogramming the mind so that it already happens. Right? Yeah, so that you feel like you've been there before a, a hundred times. The body doesn't know the difference. Yeah. Right? This is made, there's amazing research out of NASA. Um, I had a friend who was a professional car driver. They would spend hours every day in the car visualizing yeah. every single turn. Yeah. Not actually driving the car, just sitting in it and seeing it happen and the the mri differences between pre-visualization and post-visualization was extraordinary that's so cool and it is it is really true actually leading up to the sochi olympics um we did a ton of visualization work as well because for me it was my first games i had never stood on the start lines as a competitor at the games and how do you prepare for that you can't you can't practice going to the games so we would 
um, there's something called the ice house in Calgary and it's like a big refrigerated space with a push track where we can practice our starts. And so we would go to the ice house in our speed suits, race ready and actually play like cheering music for the speakers to kind of try and replicate the sound of the crowd and the feeling of being there on that starting block waiting for your turn because there's no possible way to replicate it other ways. So using your imagination, you can create what it would feel like. From there, you create those new neural connections between the mind and the brain to create the actual outcome. Yeah. There's a great book called Psycho-Cybernetics where they explain how your brain operates, where you're a, you're a cybernetic, cybernetic mechanism where if I set a goal for myself and continuously get into the feeling of what it would take to attain that goal, what I would feel like when it would have accomplished, I start creating new neural connections. So now that I start to think and act differently, to correspond with that outcome, right? And that's, I'm, yeah. su- I'm surprised it isn't more formalized in, in a major sport. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, it was a huge, that was a huge key for building confidence um, and kind of feeling like I had been there before, making, creating a more familiar feeling, for sure. Um, is there any advice you would give someone today if they were going to think about, hey, you know what? I really want to pursue this. I really want to pursue um, winning at that level. Mm-hmm. What do they have to do to, to even get in the game of, of uh, to be that person? So, so for the practical me, side, what I... Sorry. There's the practical side. Of, there's the practical side, I'm assuming, of, of doing the steps necessary and reaching out to someone. I'd like to get involved with this. But who do they have to become yeah. to do this? So for me, what I found really helpful was everyone always has that big goal. So for me, my, my big goal was being at the Olympics, not being at the Olympics, but being on the podium at the Olympics. Right. So I would say create that specific goal, figure out what you want that end, end result to be, and then figure out the steps that you need to take to put you in the best possible position to get there. So if the big goal is getting, a, getting your dream job, let's say, then, then you have that, that's your North Star. But you can't, just, you can't just go, I want that dream job and I'm just going to cross my fingers and hope that it happens. There are things that you need to do to put yourself into a position where you can get there. So whether it means you have to make some new connections by going to different mixers or asking a friend to introduce you to another friend who's in the industry or whether it means um, going back to school. Uh, There's different steps. And I think having the big goal and then having all those little goals that you can kind of check off the list across the way with always having that North star in sight, that for me was what helped me, I think, get to where I needed to be is really recognizing the steps that I needed to take to get there. Did nutrition play a huge role in your life? Like, was there a whole nutritional component that you need to adhere to every single day? Um, nutrition, for sure. There, it was more sort of surrounding our training. So um, less about what we were eating outside of training, but more how we were fueling our bodies when we were training. So making sure, because we had such long training sessions, we were at the track or in the gym for some, yeah, sometimes four to five hours. So making sure that we were taking the proper 
um, like branched chain amino acids and protein and recovery powder and all that kind of stuff to really make sure that we can get our bodies through those training sessions. That was a, a very big part of it for sure. If there was one thing you could advise someone, who do they have to be through this process? Because, sorry, I'm not asking the question properly. When you look at the top people like yourself who have attained these levels, there must be a common denominator. There's got to be some sort of common denominator amongst that level that has enabled them to achieve that. Like, like something, and this is where, you know, I'm always trying to pick up that one thing or two things. I know it's like, there's so many things that come into making something happen. Yeah. Without the one thing, none of those things would happen. Right. And there's, there's a common denominator and, um, I'm wondering if you could nail down. That's such a hard question because you're right. Like there are so many pieces to the puzzle. Um, But looking at sort of all of the fastest skeleton athletes in the world, I think the, the difference maker is just dedication and then not giving up. So not ever really feeling like you, like you win that gold medal and you you don't go out and party. You don't, you still review your video. You still do your proper cool down. You still are looking towards that kind of next step. So not ever really feeling like you've, okay, I did it and now I can relax. I think the athletes that really stood apart from the pack were the ones that realized that there was no ceiling and that they always had to keep working if they wanted to continue to be there. So like a good example is one of the fastest skeleton athletes in the world. His name is Martin Stukers and he's a Latvian. I would say he is the fastest skeleton athlete in the world. He has upwards of 60 world cup medals. I believe um, wow. he has a bronze and a silver medal in the Olympics. He's actually never won a gold medal in the Olympics, um, but he just is a force to be reckoned with. And he is the first one to arrive at the track and the last one to leave the track every single day. And he's just such a hard worker. He always, he keeps his head down and he always keeps pushing and he doesn't, he, I think he just knows that if he doesn't continue to push, then he will lose that sort of edge that he has over everyone else. Sounds like you have to enjoy the process because there is no, I don't care how much you love something or the end result to be consistently consistent in your daily activity or your daily method of operation. Unless you love that, there's no way. You can't just love that. No, definitely. And especially in a sport like skeleton where you don't actually get to do your sport for half the year. You have to like the training and you have to like being in the gym for five hours a day. And you have to like you have to like the people that you're training with. Like it is a lot of there are a lot of little pieces that have to kind of fall into place, but you definitely have to enjoy the process because otherwise there's nothing sort of keeping you on track. Yeah, and I think anyone can pull from that in any any business or anything in their life that unless you enjoy the process of the day-to-day activity, there's no sense doing it. You're not going to continue. Sure. I, think, I think someone can push for a couple, you know, a couple years or maybe, you know, at least a year in, into a, a place that, you know, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. But then if they don't really like the process, there's no way they can continue it on and be world-class world for a long period of time. And that's something you can't fake too. Can't, can't pretend think. to like what you're doing. <laughs> so no, that's very true. I tried. I was in the financial world and I, you know, I could talk and I can do those things, but 
after yeah years i just could not do it anymore just i didn't have that yeah that desire to like to process every day yeah yeah Um, for sure are you retired now is that it i am yeah so my last actually time my last run down the track was my fourth run in sochi that (laughs) is it hard still to 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 are you are you are you satisfied or do you have this this longing to go back or is are you, do you feel good now that you're i i definitely have a level of satisfaction i'm disappointed with the way that my olympics went so i think it's like a bittersweet way to leave the sport okay. and i didn't leave on my own accord i left um due to injury so i actually got injured um in two, the 2012 2013 season in Sochi at the Olympic test event, they hold a world cup um, before the Olympics every year. And that, uh, that race, I got quite a bad concussion and a neck injury. So my Olympic season wasn't exactly what I would have planned had I, had I had been able to write that story. Um, I spent a lot of time recovering from injury and I, I had to slide very carefully. I wasn't able to take all of my training runs going into every race and, um, just out of fear of getting another concussion or re-injuring myself. Um, and then my Olympics, as I said, my goal was to stand on the podium and, and I didn't achieve that. It was amazing to be there, but I didn't go there for the team jacket. I, I went there to win a medal. So, um, I gotta tell you though, it would have been, (laughs) I gotta tell you, just so you know, when for us non-performers in the world of sport, (laughs) um, I, I'm still in awe of what you have. Uh-huh. So just know that, right? That's Thank not, you. Not to just even get there, you know? Yeah. I mean, you were competing at the, in the best of our country to get there. And yeah. Still compete at that, that level and still be in the top 10 in the world. I mean, that's extraordinary. It was a phenomenal experience. And I don't want to sound ungrateful no, by any no, means. No, um, I don't get that. I just want you to know that's yeah. how, how we view it. Yeah. No, for sure. And it just, I would have loved to have been able to come back and slide healthy again, but that just wasn't on the table for me. Um, So better to go out. I think my final run in the Olympics was, I believe it was a second ranked run overall. And um, my first day of competing was not the day I had hoped for. And I think had I had had two days, like my second day of competition, I maybe would have been able to achieve my goal, but that's that's the way of the sport it's you blink and that that race is over your olympic experience goes by so fast so the physical injuries that you sustained over the course of your career um how are you feeling now i am feeling pretty good i would say that i'm not i still do struggle with head and neck issues i think just having so many concussions over the years um and i think at the time not being aware enough of what it means to continue to train through or slide through concussions and, and neck problems. I think I am paying for it now, but um, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. I, I would never be able to get on a sled again, unfortunately, but for day to day, just regular gym sessions, I'm doing well. <laughs> um, well, I appreciate you. I appreciate you spending some time with us. Um, your viewpoint on performance is really, really important for people because I think, a lot of people you know, live lives of quiet desperation where 
they're not confident in their own abilities. They don't know what to do. Um, and they get stuck in the how, right? Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I do that? You know, is this the right way to do something? And sometimes you have to act and then figure it out as you go. And stories like yours enable people to look at their own lives to say, you know what, maybe I can do something a little bit extraordinary if I believe a little bit more, right? And try a little bit harder. Um, so you only got one shot at this little life that we have. So you might as well not live in fear and go for it. Yeah, definitely. I appreciate you. Um, so you married your husband, right? <laughs> Who's yeah. an Olympian and that's, that's an amazing story. I'm, I have had the opportunity to have a conversation with him and um, you know, he shared a little bit about his story about meeting you and on tour. So we yes. love to hear your version of the story. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how well they'll match up. <laughs> and that's why I said to him, I said, be careful. I'm gonna yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. yeah, my husband, James McNaughton was a bobsledder in Sochi. Um, and we, we knew each other when we were on tour, but so bobsled and skeleton tours together. So for four years from 2010 to 2014, we spent winters together um, and we're friends, but there definitely was never anything romantic. I think you're, when you're so focused on what you're doing, you just don't, at least for me, I, I just didn't feel like I had time for anything else, but, um, we were definitely friends. We traveled together. And then, uh, after the Olympics, the Canadian Olympic committee puts on, it's called an excellence tour. And so they get all of the Olympics from the, the all of the athletes from the previous Olympics to travel to different cities around Canada. And we would go to schools and hospitals and kind of do talks and appearances. And it basically was one big party. It was a very, very fun time. Um, and James and I saw each other there and kind of reconnected. And then um, he was at the time working up north in Northern Ontario as a firefighter. So he came back to Ontario and we stayed in touch over the summer. And then when he came back to Calgary at the end of the summer, we started dating. And yeah, it was interesting. It's, he's someone that I knew well on tour. Actually, my first ever World Cup win, my first World Cup medal and World Cup win was in Lake Placid in the 2012-2013 season. And when you get off the track, you're carrying your sled and you've got your helmet and there's people all around. And it was my first experience coming down in a metal position and then actually winning. And he was the first person that I saw. And I always remember that just thinking he was such a nice guy on tour. And um, yeah. And then we started dating and I actually, I'm from Calgary, but I ended up moving out to Ontario not long after we started dating and I'm still here. So big difference yeah, between where you live now. I won't say where you live now, but um, big difference from where you live now in Calgary. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> For sure. It is. I miss the mountains a lot. <laughs> right. Will you go back? Yeah. I don't know that we have talked about moving back to Calgary. I'm not sure if that would ever happen, but um, we go back to visit tons. My whole family's still there. So oh, My wife was born in Calgary. Oh, no way. It's an amazing city. I love Calgary. We almost ended up there um, years ago before we had kids. And then we thought, well, we're going to have kids. We want to be around, you know, our, my parents and yeah. parents and then nice. ended up staying in Ontario and here we are. And here you are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it is, it is funny to think like we sometimes laugh about sort of the, like the exchanges that we had on tour when we 
weren't dating and didn't know that one day we would be married with a baby. And it's just funny to kind of look back on some of those things now in hindsight. Well, I appreciate you and I, pre- I appreciated the conversation I had with him. Um, I actually learned a lot. Um, and how you communicate um, is, is you put some thoughts in my mind and how I can serve a little bit better. So I really appreciate that. And I'm a hundred percent sure some of your story um, will impact someone in a very, very positive way. So thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun to chat with you. You as well. Good luck with the little one and good luck with James. And um, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rich. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in seeing if you are fit to work with Peak Results Academy, here's what I want you to do next. Head over to peakresultsacademy.com slash call. That's peakresultsacademy.com slash call and book an appointment to speak with our team. We'll get on the phone with you for about 45 minutes and get you crystal clear on three things. Number one, what do you really want out of life and your business? Number two, what is not working for you today? And number three, the exact strategy you should be using to create massive change in these areas. Remember, changing your life and creating massive results does not happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make it happen. We're helping clients all over the world create peak results in their health, in their businesses, and in their personal lives. To see if we can help you do the same, head over to peakresultsacademy.com call. We'll chat soon.